Are you looking for a new job? Then today's sponsor might be right up your alley. Today's episode is brought to you by RGF Professional Recruitment Japan, the bilingual arm of Recruit. Japan and Asia's largest recruiting and information service company, helping thousands of people every year to unleash their potential. RGF partners with multinational and domestic businesses with a global outlook in Japan to provide market leading bilingual talent across all industries. Their career consultants ensure that your job search is smooth and stress free whilst identifying the best opportunities to meet your career and personal goals. RGF specializes in finding positions for skilled professionals across all functions of enterprise technology, professional services and consulting, consumer technology, back office and finance, industrial and manufacturing, and healthcare. Visit rgf-professional.jp, that's rgf-professional.jp, to register your resume and unleash your potential today. That link is in the show notes. Hello and welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times, I'm Oscar Boyd. Two weeks ago, the government issued its first ever electricity supply warning for Tokyo and its eight surrounding prefectures, calling on citizens to conserve power to avoid rolling blackouts. This week on Deep Dive, Bloomberg Energy reporter Shoko Oda explains how that crisis was a decade in the making. Shoko Oda, welcome to Deep Dive. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me on the show. Could you take me back a couple of weeks to Tuesday, March the 22nd, the day Tokyo experienced this big power supply crunch? What happened that day? So it kind of snowballed even from the day before the actual power crunch. And it was that Monday when Japan was on a national holiday. And late that evening, the government issued its first ever power supply shortage alert. And this was an alert that was set up after the Fukushima nuclear disaster, but it had never been used before. What the government was worried was the next day on Tuesday, when temperatures were supposed to be colder than normal for Tokyo, they were fearing that the power supply would be lower than the actual demand. Mm-hmm. And that would cause rolling blackouts. Because people were trying to heat their homes. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah, basically. You know. Yeah, so increased demand and that could cause rolling blackouts in Tokyo and that would really disrupt people's lives and businesses. You know, from Monday evening, they were telling people power supply is going to be tight, please conserve energy as much as possible. And then came Tuesday. And if I remember correctly, Tuesday morning, it was already raining. And then it was it was really cold. So you have the backdrop for this disaster in the making. Um, But basically, TEPCO was predicting power usage to be at 100% during the peak demand, which was around 4 to 5 p.m. And then if I remember correctly, it started snowing that afternoon quite heavily, that kind of cold drizzle in the morning, then turned to pretty large snowflakes, which, you know, you don't get snow that often in Tokyo, let alone at the end of March. Yeah, I remember um, looking out the window, I think around lunchtime and seeing the snowfall and having this like sense of dread settle into (laughs) me because I was fearing that things were going to get worse. But basically, the trade minister during midday had this rare appearance, kind of an emergency press conference. Tokyo 
電力需給は極めて厳しくなる見込みです。Really, his plea was telling businesses and people to conserve power and please turn off lights as much as possible. And throughout the day, even before that, we were bombarded by social media tweets from the government and also the Tokyo Electric Power Company, TEPCO. They were really telling people to conserve power as much as possible. And did we actually see people take heed of these warnings? You know, what kind of things were people doing throughout the day to conserve electricity? Yeah, so, I mean, you know, households were ter- told to turn off power as much as possible. Maybe like everybody should be in one room and、um, have the heating on in that room, but turn off for the other rooms. Factories, businesses in the area were told to dim their lights. Skytree, the Tokyo Skytree. Usually, you know, lit up in the evenings with like very colorful, bright lights.、Uh, they were off that day because of the request. I don't know if you guys at Japan Times dimmed your lights, but I think in the afternoon, Bloomberg was also dimming lights. So, you know, I, I think everybody was trying to pitch in and do their part. Yeah, I was messaging with friends throughout the day who were sat at home wrapped in blankets without the heating on, trying to stay warm as the snow <laughs> fell outside. How much of an impact did these conservation measures actually have? Well, I mean, I think towards the afternoon, the conservation efforts did kick in. And we were seeing that things were getting a little bit better in terms of supply. And then by the evening, the government announced that Tokyo had avoided risks of、uh, blackout for that day. And I think we can say that conservation efforts did kind of play a role. Mm-hmm. And you said there that things got a little bit better in terms of supply throughout the day. So, what was being done in terms of bolstering supply? Sure. So, Japan's power grid coordinator was ordering power sharing among TEPCO and other utility companies. So, basically, other utility companies were sending power into Tokyo area to try to offset the demand there. Another thing that TEPCO was doing was they were using this thing called a pumped hydro. Electric storage. And it's basically like a hydro powered battery.、Um, you have two reservoirs at the top and the bottom. And when the demand is high, they drop the water from the top reservoir down below, passing turbine, it produces power.、Mm. And so this is another interesting thing that was happening that day. TEPCO was tweeting how much water was left at that upper res- reservoir and what, what time we might get zero. And By getting to zero percent, we wouldn't have extra power generating capacity, and hence we're in really big trouble, right?、Mm. And so it, it was almost like doomsday clock, like on the hour.、Um, TEPCO tweeting, like, we have 50 percent right now, 49 percent now. <laughs> At 8 p.m., we're gonna have like this many percent. And I was kind of monitoring that throughout the day, and、um, yeah, it, it really felt like a doomsday clock. You mentioned one of the immediate factors that led to this unprecedented electricity supply warning being issued, and that was the unseasonably cold weather that hit that Tuesday. But what other short term pressures led to the supply crunch? So, a week before that power crunch, we had a magnitude 7.4 earthquake that hit in the evening in Japan's northeastern Tohoku region. And it was a pretty big jolt.、Uh, like shakes were felt even in Tokyo.、Um, and, you know, I remember it being kind of like a long earthquake and it was really scary.、Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's the first earthquake I've ever experienced in Tokyo where、oh, I've、yeah. actually, I, I mean, I've experienced earthquakes, but this one, I got out of bed, put on a jacket,、oh, put、wow. on some shoes, <laughs> like ready to kind of、really、know, get, out, get out of the street <laughs> if necessary. Yeah. Yeah. So that earthquake took about 14 power plants offline. 
And that took about six gigawatt capacity worth of power offline. And just to put that into context, one gigawatt of electricity is enough to power around 750,000 homes. And so six gigawatts is equivalent to about 4.5 million homes worth of electricity Mm -hmm. that was knocked out by the Mm -hmm. earthquake that took place on March 16th. Yeah. And prior to the power crash, several of those power plants were still out because they hadn't fixed it up or um, it wasn't ready to go back online. As you mentioned, the weather, it was really cold and cloudy, rainy that day. So what that does is it cuts the outputs from solar power generation. So on top of that cold weather, we had less than ample supply of power and you had this series of unfortunate events that kind of joined together and created this power crunch. After the immediate crisis was over, you and your colleagues wrote a really interesting article looking at the challenges that Japan's power grid has faced over the past decade and how those relate to this power crunch. So what are some of the longer term factors that led up to this shortage in supply? Yeah, so there's a lot of layers to this issue and obviously it's very complicated and I think there are a lot of nuances to Japan's energy structures or policies. But for the sake of this podcast, I'm just going to discuss three major reasons. But we we obviously have to start with what happened after March 11, 2011, in terms of Japan's uh, stance against nuclear power. Okay, so this is the first of those three reasons. So let's get into that. How did 3.11 change Japan's energy landscape? So as everybody probably knows, on March 11, 2011, we had that massive 9.0 magnitude earthquake that hit Japan's Tohoku region. Um, a lot of damages from the quake, but also the tsunamis, which overwhelmed TEPCO's Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant. And it shut off the cooling system that led to a meltdown in the reactor cores. And it, it was the worst nuclear disaster since Chernobyl. And Japan had to take off all of its 54 nuclear reactors offline following the disaster. And roughly how much electricity was being supplied from those 54 nuclear plants before the disaster? So up till Fukushima, nuclear supplied about 30% of Japan's power needs. And they even had a target um, before the disaster to increase that to 50% by 2030. But obviously, after the quake and tsunamis, everything changed. Right. So just under a third of Japan's electricity supply was coming from nuclear power plants. It's now been 11 years since that disaster struck, how many of Japan's nuclear plants have come back online since then? So currently only 10 have restarted and under the new protocols that were set after Fukushima disaster in terms of how to restart these nuclear reactors. And nuclear power is now less than 10% of Japan's power mix. Mm -hmm. So there's a really rigorous restart procedures that these these utility providers have to take in order to restart their reactors. The goal now is to have nuclear be 20 to 22 percent of that energy mix by 2030, but that would require pretty much all of our 33 commercially available fleet to go back online. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, not only the restart protocols are really rigorous, but you also have to take into account court rulings and these local resident groups that oppose having nuclear reactor in their backyard, they they file for these lawsuits, um, which could really delay the restart schedules. So it's not easy mm-hmm. in today's age to get these nuclear re- reactors back online. 
So when we relate the loss of nuclear power generation to what happened on March 22nd with the power supply crunch, is it fair to say that taking all those plants offline has contributed to a much less resilient electricity supply in Japan? Yeah, yeah, certainly. Yeah, I mean, experts have said, you know, some of the people that we've talked to have said if if nuclear reactors were available, Mm. what happened with the power crunch, it wouldn't have been such a big deal because we would have had that backup power. Okay. So you said there were three main factors that you were going to talk about that contributed to the power crunch. If the first is the loss of that nuclear power fleet post 311, what's the second main factor? Sure. So we will have to start with Japan's liberalized power market. Mm. And like the UK and also other countries, Japan has a liberalized power market. And that culminated in 2016 with um, a reform to basically kind of take away the monopolistic power that these big power companies like TEPCO and Kansai Electric and all the regional players had to open up the market, bring more competition, and lower the power bills for the consumers. Mm-hmm. And so that was done. But you know, as a result, we have about 700 power retailers in the market today. But all of these smaller retailers don't necessarily have their own power generating capacities. And instead, they purchase power from a spot power market or they also form agreements with existing power plants to get their supply. And so what does that mean in terms of, again, the strengths of Japan's energy sector as a whole? So with liberalization, all of these big power players like TEPCO and the regional utilities lost their customers to the smaller retailers that were undercutting them. Mm-hmm. So the big companies have to start thinking about how to save money. So cost-saving measures, basically. And one of the things that they were looking at was how to have a leaner fleet of thermal power plants that cost a lot of money to keep. There's also um, less incentive to replace them once they are retired um, because they've lost that demand. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the, I guess, the more management business perspective of why we've had less and less thermal power plants over time. But you also have to consider, again, going back to the decarbonization background, Japan now has this target to cut carbon emissions by 46% versus 2013 levels by 2030. Mm -hmm. And now we want to go carbon neutral by 2050. Why would big power companies like TEPCO want to keep up with these thermal power plants when they're at risk of becoming stranded assets in the future. So these power companies are losing more incentive to basically retain and maintain their thermal power plants. So this again contributes to kind of a lack of resilience within the power system as a whole. Yeah, so you know, this all contributed to reasons why um, the power crunch happened on that day. Japan only had about 142 gigawatts worth of available power before the quake on March 16th. And that was 23% lower than 2016. And 2016 was when that big market liberalization happened. Yeah. So you can see over time how we've, you know, lost the power capacity of we've been running on such thin margins for for some time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this isn't a trend that's going away. A lot of these power plants will also go offline in the, in, in the upcoming years. So we're going to have less and less of um, available capacity. Mm-hmm. I think that takes us nicely to the third factor that you're going to talk about, which is the growth in renewables, and particularly of solar, which is gradually replacing those fossil fuel plants that are being phased out. So how has the growth of renewables shaped Japan's power grid and its resilience in times of crisis? Sure. So Japan introduced like a feed-in tariff program in 2012, and that was largely 
successful in installing a lot of solar panels throughout the country. But you also have to think about solar as being, um, it's not a stable source of power. You know, it's, it's swayed by things like weather or, you know, cloudiness. And you you see something like in, in the power crunch on March 22nd, on a, on a cloudy, rainy day like that, you really can't rely on solar panels. So it's not a good replacement to cover for what we call baseload power, which is that minimum power that you need to provide. Mm-hmm. Because the power it produces is so variable and we don't yet have the battery capacity to store any excess energy and make it a more consistent source of electricity. So, yeah, I think that's kind of a technology that needs to be developed in parallel. And, you know, I think companies are looking into that realm. I know you've simplified it, but even what you've laid out just there shows how complex it is for Japan to ensure that it has a stable energy supply as it continues to deal with the long tail of the 311 disaster. It juggles market liberalisation and also tries to work towards its targets for renewables. On top of that, you then have an earthquake that knocks out existing supply, as well as unseasonably cold weather that pushes the system over the edge with increased demand. It doesn't sound like there are quick fixes to a lot of these issues, though. So would you say Tokyo is out of the woods or might we see a repeat of what happened on March 22nd in the future? Yeah, it's very possible something similar could happen again. The trade ministry has said that we'll have pretty tight power supplies like during the winter, this winter, upcoming winter Mm -hmm. as well. And in terms of peak summer season in the upcoming summer months, some of the thermal power plants that went out because of the earthquake are not back online yet. Mm. And, you know, I, I don't want to jinx anything, <laughs> like knock on wood that this doesn't happen, but who knows when we're going to get hit by another big earthquake and who knows when, if that might take out more power plants offline, right? So mm. we're definitely not out of the woods. And I think it's it's something that, that could certainly happen again. Mm. Do we know when those damaged plants from the March 16th earthquake might come back online? So some of them have a schedule for coming back online. And then I think I think I saw some of them are, they're not sure specifically when that might come back on before summer or if it's going to be during the summer months. But, you know, in the sweltering heat, you need to turn on your AC and that's when you have demand kind of spike up for cooling. So hopefully they get it back on. Yeah, fingers crossed. I'm not sure I can survive a Japanese summer without some air con. While all of this is happening, though, I'm aware that in the background, we've also got a global energy supply challenge following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. A lot of sanctions have been placed on Russia's economy, including on its oil and gas sectors, and that sent prices for those commodities soaring around the world. How are these raised prices impacting Japan's energy supply at the moment? So the war has led to a global commodity rally and things like oil and natural gas prices have been record highs. Uh, That's obviously really bad news for Japan because we import most of our fuel or energy supply. Mm -hmm. Um, Just to give some figures, uh, Japan's the world's second biggest LNG importer and 9% of it comes from Russia. And the majority of uh, um, the other supply comes from places like Australia, Malaysia, Qatar. With oil and gas prices going up, you know, it's it's raised the electricity bills in Japan. I don't know if you've seen your power bill lately, mm-hmm. but it's been getting, it's on an upward trend. 
maybe not related to power, but also equally important is um, gasoline prices have shot up in the country. And not just gasoline, but other oil products like kerosene. And, and that's really impacting not just basic, you know, households, but industries. So I've spoken with people that run like bathhouses mm. and dry cleaners, and, you know, they rely a lot on oil products and they're getting, they're feeling the pinch. So the government is um, trying to kind of tamp down the rising gasoline prices, and they've been handing out subsidies to oil refiners since January, but that has done not too much to suppress the upside. Mm. And so now they're talking about more extreme measures, which is um, lowering gasoline taxes, because Prime Minister Fubio Kishida has an upcoming election in the summer. So he really kind of wants to tackle this and make sure that, you know, the voters know that he's taking care of it. Mm -hmm. And are these energy prices causing Japan to reevaluate its energy supply and where it gets its energy from? Well, I think it sparked a debate over nuclear and whether, you know, Japan should return to using more of nuclear power. There was a panel within the ruling Liberal Democratic Party and also the opposition Ishin no Kai Party mm -hmm. that put in requests to the government to say that this is an emergency, you know, power bills are going up on back of expensive fuel, we need to restart nuclear reactors faster. Mm -hmm. And so it really is, I think, creating this environment for that debate and Interestingly enough, I think the Nikkei survey from the end of March showed that narrow majority of the Japanese now supported restarting reactors. So I think it'll be interesting to see where, depending on how long this expensive fuel price continues, mm -hmm. whether that'll even spark more debate. Interesting. And this is the first time since 2011 that a majority of the public, right. and it's, it's, I think the official stat is 53% currently right, yep. say that the nuclear plant should be restarted. Yeah. So it's a slim majority, but it is the first time in 11 years that a majority have wanted these plants restarted. Yeah. yeah, and I think, I mean, I don't think it's just Japan that's having that nuclear debate. You know, European countries are also, whether they were pro-nuclear or anti-nuclear, they're having, I think everyone's kind of forced to reckon with the idea that, perhaps nuclear, a degree of nuclear power is needed in times like these. And I, I kind of want to ask, you know, obviously the LDP is pushing for this, or at least parts of the LDP is pushing for a nuclear restart. And we now have this slim majority of the Japanese mm -hmm. pop populace who say, yes, we're kind of fine with this going ahead, we're fine with restarting these nuclear plants. But how easy would it actually be at this point to turn the nuclear plants back on? Yeah. So that's another thing. Just because the politicians are saying we need to restart, it doesn't work that way. Um, so after Fukushima disaster, they, they made a very rigorous restart procedure, and that's ran by an independent regulatory body, the nuclear regulation authorities. So just because politicians are asking for expedited restart doesn't mean, you know, unless... Unless this like restart procedure dramatically changes to allow utilities to restart quicker, I don't think it's going to really change the speed of things. Mm -hmm. You also have to keep in mind, again, going back to the local opposition, they're going to be filing for court cases and s stuff like that. And that those, those take time as well. So I think the reality of it is... LDP might be pushing for it and, you know, the public sentiments might be changing, but unless those, I guess, procedures and local 
community sentiments change dramatically, it's, you, you, you're not really going to see much difference. You've touched on this briefly as well, you know, the fact that Japan is looking to transition away from fossil fuels and Japan is trying to fulfil its climate change obligations that it pledged at COP26 back in November. In other countries, I think we've really seen in response to the Ukraine-Russia war, this debate that has emerged about the future of energy in these countries. And Mm -hmm. it seems to fall, as per usual, onto very two distinct and opposing sides one side saying, you know, this is absolutely the time we should be transitioning to cleaner fuels and we should be looking at this war also in conjunction with COP26 and transition targets mm-hmm. to really push these technologies and make sure we, we go on a cleaner pathway. And then at the same time, you have a separate group of people saying, no, this is the time to bolster the existing assets we have when it comes to fossil fuels like yeah. uh, oil and gas and, you know, increase drilling and open everything up. Is this conversation being had in Japan at the moment? And, and if so, where is it heading? Yeah, I mean, yeah, like you mentioned, it is really a moment for both of the sides to kind of make that case. Um, in terms of renewable, I mean, Japan has an ambitious target for installing renewables. They want they want to have 36 to 38 percent of energy mix for renewables by 2030. And the big thing now is offshore wind. And Japan's opening up a series of um, offshore wind sites to auctions in the upcoming years. And so they do have that in mind. But at the same time, I think from the government's perspective of, you know, making sure that we have energy security, they kind of see fossil fuel like gas continuing to have um, a place in the energy mix for, un- until we fully decarbonize. And they kind of see it as like a transition. Perhaps how they view fossil fuels is a little bit different from Europe, where I think the, the calls are a little bit louder to push for renewables. Um quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. Japan has always kind of said, you know, this transition has to be taken in a gradual manner. And you're going to have things like, you know, this war, but also just you have to consider things that um, like Japan doesn't have resources. We, We are geographically different from Europe. That's like connected by pipelines. And there's all these like differences between Japan and other countries, right? So the government has always kind of said, Transition into green doesn't have to be in a, I guess, a a cookie-cutter model, like one cookie-cutter model per se, se, and and that there should be various paths to achieving that goal. So I think um, it's, it's really difficult. I mean, you know, on one hand, you do want to achieve the targets that Japan has set, and they're pushing for it, but things like offshore wind does not go online in just a few months. It takes a really long time to install. Mm. So what are you going to do in the meantime to make sure that Japan has energy security? Well, then you're going to have to turn to things like fossil fuels, like gas, to um, at least cover you until until we make that switch to renewables. Mm-hmm. We've spent most of this episode discussing the supply side of the energy equation. But one of the things that we saw on March 22nd was this call for widespread energy conservation. And I suppose the other way Japan could go about addressing its energy needs in the future is to put more emphasis on reducing demand by setting things like higher efficiency standards, improving insulation in homes and buildings, things like that. Do you think this energy crunch will place a greater focus 
on efficiency to make sure that the country is actually using less energy to start with. So the good news is I think Japan is already on on the front runner, I guess, in terms of energy conservation and efficient use technologies. You have like household appliances that are that use power very efficiently. And we've always had this very like participatory model of getting people to pitch in to help save power and save en- like during, you know, energy crisis. So the good news is that's already in place. But I guess on the flip side, you know, any further plea or asking people to cut back even further, I've spoken with experts and they are not sure how much of an impact it'll have. Um, whereas compared to maybe like places like US, you know, if you ask people to cut back on energy usage a little bit more, it might have a bigger impact. Mm-hmm. So because other nations are using more energy to start right, right, with right. per capita, yeah. they have a greater potential to reduce that energy if yeah. asked to. Yeah, conservation probably will have, um, it, it'll, it might have a more visible impact in places like that versus Japan. But like what happened on March 22nd, it looks great on paper when you say like, oh, people pitched in and saved power and we were able to avoid blackout risk. And, you know, the government was thanking people on social media. TEPCO was thanking people on social media about, you know, for pitching and doing the part to help. But at the end of the day, that doesn't solve any of the problems we discussed today, right? And those are all very like structural problems that will take a lot of work and will take a lot of time for Japan to figure out and and kind of rejig and, and decide what works, what doesn't. So it's it shouldn't be a silver bullet. I think it's great that people like comply and help and in and I think that there that's nice, but it shouldn't be the end all solution. Shoko, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. That was Bloomberg Energy reporter Shoko Oda. Many thanks to her for joining me and I put links to her recent articles about Tokyo's energy crisis in the show notes. Also in the Japan Times this week, a newly published report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change says that oil platforms, coal power plants and other fossil fuel assets could lose trillions of dollars in value in the coming decades as the battle against climate change gains momentum. The report says that these assets are likely to become stranded and worth less than expected as fossil fuel demand is limited to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Also, East Japan Railway Company said on Tuesday that all lines of its Tohoku Shinkansen will resume services on April 14th after last month's earthquake damaged the tracks and caused one bullet train to derail. Trains will run at reduced frequency and speeds until after Golden Week in May. Those stories and all of the latest news from Japan at japantimes.co.jp. If you've enjoyed this week's episode, then please do leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really does help others find the show. We'll be back next week, but until then, as always, Potsukare-sama. Potsukare-sama.